If you would, uh, please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We are still in Hebrews, um, but I want to start by uh, going to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 3. And if you have your pew Bibles, this is actually on page 922. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Hopefully this is a passage that is familiar to you. But I'll just read these first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So why this text? Why start here? Well, last week we actually didn't have time to get into this, and for some reason the clock that's up here to let me know if I'm keeping you too late had fallen over, and some of y'all had started shifting uncomfortably, so I was worried that we were at like 12.45 and I had no idea, so I tried to wrap things up quickly, but we were fine, you know, no reason to panic. But this is one of the texts that I wanted to get into a little bit more deeply last week as we began to discuss the glory of Jesus serving as our great high priest. And the point I made with this text is that Paul values very highly knowing Christ. It is a treasure for him, such a treasure that everything, not just his heritage as a Jew, not just the fact that he was a supreme Jew, not just the fact that he was a Pharisee advancing in Judaism beyond all of his peers, not just all that, but then he clarifies, and I counted everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is so amazing that everything in Paul's life, good, bad, indifferent, he counts as lush and considers it even rubbish. It's a very PG translation of the word that's going on there. A clean way to say it would be biohazardous waste. I count it all as biohazardous waste in comparison to the value and the treasure of knowing Christ. And let me just pause right here before we get back into this grand idea of Jesus being our great high priest. Is knowing Christ that valuable to you? Is everything else in your life counted as rubbish, refuse, loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Do you know him this way, that the knowledge of him is not for you something in the background or even on the foundation, but it's everything for you to know him? And this isn't some mystical idea whereby you feel a certain way when you're reading things about Jesus. That's not what he's talking about, that I would know him in the power of his resurrection 
This isn't just something Paul likes to do in addition to being a Christian. This is everything for him. This is being a Christian for him. That I would know Christ and the power of his resurrection that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is where he sets his hope to know Christ. And regardless of where you are in your spiritual maturity, this is something you can latch on to. You may not know exactly what your gifting is or what God is calling you to do in some great way. You may not feel very qualified. You may not feel very skilled. But if you are a Christian, you've been given everything you need pertaining to godliness and holiness. And it can be for you your life's journey to know Christ. And I would say that should be the underlying reason for everything you do. If it is in fact God's plan for you that you would go into ministry or that you would go into a place of significant influence or get married or have kids or run a business or whatever it is, that all of it, the reason behind of it, your motivation in it would be to know Christ. That should be the motivating factor in every decision you make to know Christ. Everything else is loss. Everything else is worthless. Everything else is rubbish. Do you want to know Christ this way? Is he that valuable to you? And for Paul, it's not a hard trade. Think of everything you know about the life of Paul and how much he suffered for the sake of Christ. For him, knowing Christ and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that is so valuable to him that all of the great things that he had in his life going on and all of the great things he even left after becoming a Christian, it's not a bad trade for him. It's loss. Why would it be a problem for Paul to consider the loss of rubbish to gain the treasure of Christ? Do you see it that way? My goal towards you as your pastor, you could summarize it in probably a thousand different ways. But at the bottom is this. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know the real resurrected Jesus. And it's no small thing. Paul esteemed it as his life's journey to know Christ. Even though he understood all this theology, he had all this truth lined up, he had all this experience in the ministry, and yet he even says, I am straining towards the goal. I don't consider that I have already made it my own, but this I know, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the upward call of Christ. That can be the same thing for you. For sure, he's not called me to be an apostle like Paul, and he's not called you to be an apostle like Paul, but he's called all of you to know Christ. So with that said, do you know your Bible? One of the guys who mentored me for a while related a story to me where he said to a young man who was, you know, confident in his faith, about to go off to college. And he said, hey, so, you know, are you ready to go to college? Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go. Do you believe the Bible? Yeah, sure. I read. I, I believe the Bible. And he asked this. Have you read the whole thing? You say you believe it. You say that it's the word of God. You say that it is more important to us than our very food, according to Jesus. But have you read the whole thing? Do you know what's in there? If you met Haggai or Obadiah or Zechariah in heaven, would you have anything to talk about? And this isn't just a small thing when it comes to part of knowing Christ. This is where you meet him. This is this is very evident from Luke's gospel, chapter 24. We actually use this story in the vacation Bible school, so it's in my mind. It's fresh. This is just one example. If you remember the story, Jesus has already come back from the dead and he is walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and he comes along two disciples of his who are talking about all that's happened. 
and they're confused and they maybe feel left out because they didn't get to see Jesus raised from the dead if he really has been. And then Jesus comes along and he prevents them from seeing that it's him and he starts talking to them. He says, hey, what you talking about? What you discussing? And they said, all the things that have been happening in Jerusalem. And he says to them, what things? And he's supernaturally preventing them from seeing that it's him. And then they start going through the entire story. And how does Jesus respond? This is Luke 24, verse 25. This is how Jesus responds. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The entire Old Testament, brothers and sisters, is about Jesus You may not see his name written in the pages. You may not see it explicitly, but starting with Moses and then through the entire prophets, Jesus relates how the entire thing is about him. And this is the point. He doesn't want them to believe the truth that has been proclaimed to them about Jesus being alive based on them seeing him. He calls them foolish because they have not believed the prophets. And this is related also in Jesus when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is crying out because of the torment. And he says, Father Abraham, please send me so that I may go warn my brothers not to come. Not to come to this place. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone comes back from the dead and warns them, then surely they will listen, he said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone comes back from the dead and warns them. This, brothers and sisters, this is where you meet Christ. It's all about him. It's objective. And I hope it's clear why I'm saying all this in a sermon on Jesus as our great high priest. These are things that we don't often think in. We don't consider often, it doesn't come to our minds frequently, that Jesus is in fact our high priest. But the way that you know Christ is to understand all that Jesus has in fact spoken of himself and what the Bible says about him. And he is your high priest. In the most fundamental sense of what his role towards you is as a believer right now today, it's your great high priest. What does that mean? Do you know what all of that means? If I asked all of you to start writing right now on a piece of paper, I'm not asking you to do this, but if I asked you to just start writing or typing or uh, text to speech, you know, telling Siri everything that you know or what it means to you or your reflections on Jesus being your great high priest, how long could you go? How long would you go until you just ran out of things to say? And yet, this idea of him serving as our great high priest is almost the summary or the building together or the capstone of everything he is for you. Do you want to know Christ? Then you must know him this way. Your great high priest. And it's difficult. When we think of Jesus being king, we can think of many implications or ideas of what that means. He's our king. He rules over us. He tells us what to do. He sets what the laws are and we serve him. He's our friend. He's our leader. He is God. He is our redeemer. All of those are very clear. There are immediate implications in our minds because of all that we've known and what we've been taught growing up in church or just knowing from experience what it means for Jesus to be all of those things. But when I say Jesus is your great high priest, how many things come to mind? And how many of those are based on the scriptures? And one example of this and how 
problematic this is, there are at least seven chapters in the New Testament that deal primarily with Jesus being your great high priest. And there are dozens of chapters in the Old Testament that build the foundation for this. So we've got lots and lots of biblical material over Jesus being our great high priest. And I can think of only one song in all of the songs that are sung right now in evangelicalism that even mention Jesus being your great high priest. And that song isn't even primarily about him being your high priest. We don't think of this. It's difficult. It's not practical in the sense that's easily accessible. You can't put together a five-step program based on Jesus being your great high priest. This is the mystery of faith that we've been called to understand. Do you want to know Christ? And you must know him in this way. So now, with all of that said, with that foundation built, I hope that I've encouraged you and created even in you a desire to know Jesus this way. Go to Hebrews. And I'll reread chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 to set the stage. This is the text we covered last week. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So bring all of what we said last week into your mind. And I basically attacked the text this way. I asked the question, why do we need Jesus as our great high priest? And using these verses, these three verses, I gave several answers. And this is all I believe apparent in the text. You need Jesus to serve as your great high priest because that is what Jesus really is. If you want to know Christ at all, you better know him in the way that he really is. So you need him to be your high priest because that is his primary function towards you now. You need Jesus as your high priest because the most important things about your destiny and hope and future you've never seen. You need Jesus particularly to be your high priest because he is in fact the son of God. You need Jesus to serve as your great high priest because he is the one that our confession is about and it is put on us as a requirement that we hold fast to our confession and endure to the end, just like Jesus did. We need Jesus as our high priest because you and I are weak and we need someone to mediate between us and God the Father who can be gentle and empathetic, sympathetic towards us. We need Jesus to be our high priest because we have sin. And though he was tempted like we are, Jesus never sinned. We need Jesus as our high priest because we need to draw near to God. This is a deep need for the believer. We're created in God's image. We're created to know him. And because of sin, we're separated from that. And because of what Jesus has done in serving as our great high priest, we can now draw near with confidence. We need Jesus to be our high priest, great high priest, because it is only his death, only in his death that we can receive mercy. And mercy is what we need. We need Jesus to serve as our great high priest because he can give you divine grace and help in times that we desperately, deeply need it. So that's a summary of everything we discussed last week. Now, with that hopefully brought back up into your minds, creating in you a sense of desiring to know him as your great high priest and understanding why you need him as your great high priest. Let's look at verses one through six in chapter five. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently 
with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, what is the controlling question that this text is answering? Why would the author write this? And I believe this is what he's answering. How did Jesus become your great high priest? Because this is something that he is now, but he has not always been your high priest. Something had to happen so that he could serve as your great high priest forever. And in the way that God has appointed him as high priest and all of the intricate observations of that process, we can find great encouragement and strength. So let's look at them. Firstly, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So this is just an observation of how the office of high priest functions in general. And he's looking, essentially reflecting on the Old Testament and making observations so that he can understand Christ. That's an underlying point that you should take in general. And this is what I was saying with Jesus' talk to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Is everything said in the Old Testament about the high priest in general is helping us understand who Jesus is. So the author is doing that here. The first word I want to emphasize here is this word chosen. Chosen, not as a democracy, not through nomination. If you know and you, you remember the story of God appointing Aaron, Moses' younger brother, as high priest, it was God who singled him out. This is from Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5. If you want to go and read that later, feel free. Aaron was chosen. There was not a process of nomination. It wasn't people putting their names in a hat. This is a unique office. High priest. And God says, Aaron and his sons after him will serve as my high priest. God chooses the high priest. It's different than every other office in the church. We have elder, pastor, deacon, servant. And in every case, that is something that the whole church takes part in choosing. But high priest is not that way. High priest is different. High priest is special. It's God who chooses and sets apart. And his role... I want you to, to underscore and highlight this. This is very important. And I tried to define a little bit of what it means to be a priest. It says, every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed, and here is the role of the priest in a very simple, short way, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what Jesus has become for you the one who is appointed to act on your behalf before God in relation to your sins. And this might be the reason that the idea of Jesus serving as our high priest has fallen out of vogue and is no longer very popular, at least as expressed in the music. And in things we talk about is that it inherently relies on the fact that we are the sinners who need a high priest. And then what Jesus is doing is mediating or acting on our behalf before God because of our sin. We don't like to think about sin. We don't like to talk about sin. We like to think about sin as done with, over. 
We don't need to talk about it or discuss it anymore. Jesus took care of that on the cross. But Jesus right now, today, is mediating between you and the Father because of our sin. He must act on our behalf before God because we have sin. And we continue to sin even though if you are a Christian, you have put to death the deeds of the flesh. We all stumble in many ways. And you need a great high priest dealing with God, representing you to God, acting on your behalf before God because of your sin. And the Day of Atonement is in view here. You can read Leviticus chapter 16. That's usually one of the books of the Bible that when we get to with our New Year's resolutions to read through the Bible, we get to Leviticus in the first several chapters and we say, this must not be for me. I don't have the spiritual gift of reading the Bible. Um, but Leviticus 16 is probably one of the most powerful passages in helping us understand what it means for Jesus to serve as our high priest because the Day of Atonement, more than any other day in the Jewish calendar, was meant for the high priest to go to the Lord in the Holy of Holies one day a year and present sacrifices and atonement for his sins, the sins of his household, and the sins of the entire nation. We won't get into it in depth. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have a whole um, week or, or Sunday to cover Leviticus 16 once we get to chapters 7 and 9, either or. But, the, but what you need to be thinking in your mind of is that the most important day for the Jews, as it, when, when you start to consider their interaction with God, was the Day of Atonement, where the priest, only one time a year, one day of out of the entire year, and only for a brief moment on that day, entered the Holy of Holies with blood and sprinkled it on all sides of the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And there, that's where forgiveness took place. That should be in your mind, that, that the flavor of that day and the severity and the holiness and the sacredness of that day should be in your mind as you think about Jesus as your high priest. And then he says, he, the high priest, in this case, Aaron, he's, he probably has uh, any high priest, but we'll use Aaron as our example here. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Remember Aaron's story? You remember what happened? What, what, was, what was his main thing that he's known for as they leave the nation of Egypt and go into the wilderness. What did Aaron do? Moses is up on the mountain. The people grumble and they say, make an image for us who will go before us. Basically make an idol to represent Yahweh, which God had forbidden them to do in the words given to them from Mount Sinai. And what does Aaron do? Give me all your gold. And he fashions an idol. And then when Moses comes down and asks him, what have you done? What does he say? Hey, I'm a victim here. I just uh, threw all the gold into the fire and out came this calf. So Aaron is a flawed, problematic figure. People died that day because of the rebellion. God sets aside Aaron after this incident to serve as the high priest. Because this idea is so significant, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Do you sense that? That Aaron, for the rest of his life, would sense the power and the gravity of how much he was forgiven. He was cleansed, and it's not like he persisted in that. He repented and was forgiven. But that story, the understanding of his own weakness, is what suited him. What enabled him even to serve in his office as high priest because he knows his own frailty. And just as a side note, with that, you might see those three words, beset with weakness. And you may say, that's, that's my new life verse or phrase out of the Bible because that's me. I'm beset 
with weakness. But that is what uniquely qualifies Aaron or any high priest to serve as high priest because they need to understand, regardless of what their story has been, like Eleazar, Aaron's son, didn't lead all of Israel to worship an idol, but he himself, all of the high priests after were beset by weakness, and that qualifies them to, do, to deal gently with the wayward and ignorant. Not walking in sin, but understanding that you are beset by weakness. And this gentleness, another side note here, you should know this, this gentleness for the wayward and ignorant, it does not stand for, it is not for those who are in rebellion. You think of how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's not gentle. Because gentle is not what they needed to come to repentance. If you're rebelling against God with a high hand, defying the God of the universe and not desiring forgiveness, then that gentleness is not what he has for you. He has sternness instead. So at this point, we've, we're discussing Aaron's frailty and his testimony and what he did and how he sinned and how that uniquely qualifies him in some sense at least in remembering his own weakness so that he can in fact deal with the wayward and the ignorant you should be asking yourself in this question if this question if you followed with me along to this point how can that be true of Jesus this is a problem if what qualifies the high priest of the Old Testament to deal with the wayward and the ignorant is because they themselves are beset by weakness, how can this be true of Jesus? How can Jesus serve as my high priest? How can he deal with me? Because I am often wayward and ignorant. How can Jesus be this sympathetic high priest to me? That's the issue that should be in your mind. And the author will answer it, specifically in verses 7 through 10, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. But he begins to answer it even here. Because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Again, as we spoke about Leviticus 16, the high priest had to make atonement for his own sins so that he could be a suitable high priest and then make atonement for the sins of his household and then make atonement for the sins of the people. Why did he need to do that? Because he is beset by weaknesses. So here's the tension that you should feel. You need a high priest who is able to deal gently with you and me, because we are often, and perhaps even always, wayward and ignorant. The way this worked, or the way that this was satisfied, this need for a sympathetic high priest under the Old Testament, is that the high priests were humans. And all humans, regardless of how spotless their record might appear to us, are beset by weakness. But there's an issue. If the one mediating my situation to God, if the one representing me to God needs also to deal with his own sin, then doesn't he need a priest? Isn't the final idea here the implication that if you've got sin as the high priest, then you need a further one to mediate between you and God? And that is how the Old Testament, even in itself, as it's being built out, the first covenant has inadequacies and gaps that are meant to point the people of God forward to the coming Messiah. There will be one who comes who doesn't need a priest to mediate for him because he will not have his own sin. We already talked about this in chapter four. He was tested in every way like we were yet without sin. But I need someone who at the same time can empathize with my weaknesses. 
I don't just need someone who's so perfect and far off and transcendent and doesn't understand my situation to represent me to God on my behalf. And at the same time, I don't want someone who's so flawed and fragile like I am that he himself needs a priest. Because then we're back into the same circle. So how can Jesus empathize with me? How has he shown himself to be this gentle, sympathetic, empathetic high priest for you and me? Here's the first answer the author gives. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is the first proof of Jesus being able to deal with you gently. He did not claim this honor for himself. He humbled himself. You can go and read Numbers chapters 16 and 17 to read about the rebellion of Korah. And essentially what was at issue here is that the people began to say, you have gone too far, Moses and Aaron. We're all the people of God. How can you put yourself above us? And God responds by doing this test. Every leader of the household is to take a staff and then put it in the house of the Lord. And then at the next morning, Aaron's staff budded and it, it burst forth and had life on it. Basically, God saying, Aaron is my chosen one. He didn't presume to step forward and take this office on himself. I have chosen Aaron to be my high priest. All of you are false. Aaron was singled out by God to serve in this role. The disgraced but forgiven and repentant brother of Moses. And then the author of Hebrews continues, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. So we can understand how it would be presumptuous and proud to jump at a job like being a high priest. So if you've ever had a time in your life where you've been applying for jobs, right? Sometimes you send in your application for jobs that you know Deep down, I'm not really qualified for, right? Oh, it would be so great to get that job or that position, but I know, like, maybe it'll work out, but I'll just send in my application. I know I'm not qualified. We'll see what happens. That's a little presumptuous. It's not sinful in that sense when you're just sending out applications, but in the, in the case of the high priest, it's very important for the author here to say, no one takes this himself. No one rises up and takes the office of high priest. Only God can appoint someone. But it is not as if Jesus is not worthy. Right? It would be presumptuous for you or me to aspire to the office of great high priest. It would be presumptuous even for an angel to take on the office of high priest, but the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, the I Am, Yahweh Himself, is He not qualified for this role? As the song says, He is. Is He worthy? He is. But He humbled Himself. This job is so sacred and so central to the work of God that Jesus himself will not rise up and claim this for himself. Even though he has all the rights to do so, this is his first step in showing you and me that he is able to deal gently and mercifully with us because he does not presume even on his own worthiness to take this office of high priest. He waits. He humbles himself and God appoints him. This is how Jesus becomes your great high priest. God appoints him. This is who he is. He is your high priest forever because God has made him so. Do you think of him this way? Do you want to know Christ? You must know him this way. 
It is only in his office as high priest that you begin to appreciate his lowliness and his mercifulness and his ability to deal with our infirmities and our ignorance and our waywardness. He went through all of that and waiting for God to appoint him so that he would be able to say to you and me for all of our lives, I can help you. I'm your advocate. I am your high priest. I can deal with you. I know what it's like. Struggles as a Christian. All of them. And this is why one of the reasons I think the enemy has worked a great victory against Christians by removing it from our common conversations that we don't think about Jesus as our high priest very much. Because every issue you run into as a Christian, every doubt, every fear, every uncertainty and anxiety is solved and met in the reality of Jesus serving as your great high priest. Do you fear his acceptance? Jesus is your great high priest. Do you have anxiety that the holiness of God is too much for you? It would even break you if he were to judge you. Jesus is your great high priest. Do you struggle with pride? You can look at Jesus as your example in his humility to serve as your great high priest. Do you struggle with your own weakness? Jesus went through all of this so that he would be able to empathize and deal gently with you as your high priest. Do you struggle with other people who are weak around you? Look at Jesus as your example who went through everything he went through so that he would be an empathetic and gracious and merciful and gentle high priest. That's how we can be to each other. And what about us? Jesus is our high priest and he serves in that role. We understand that. But last week we also talked about this idea of because of Jesus being our high priest, we can now draw near with confidence. You maybe feel on the outside, feel like God is not near to you, feel like, God, where are you? You can just echo with David, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus himself has been in that spot because he wants to be your high priest and know what it's like to feel forsaken by God. And because of that, now even we can draw near in the priestly service of God. Even for us, he has appointed us just like he has appointed Jesus to serve as great high priest. We now serve as priests under his rule. You can see 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 for that. But John says in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he may give it to you. Jesus was appointed as high priest and what God has done for you in Christ is appoint you that your fruit would be abundant and that your fruit would abide. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is so much here. So much. There's even a cliffhanger here with the character Melchizedek. And I just want to teach you, just as a, as a brief pause, how to say this name, because it's going to be a big deal. I'll probably say it thousands of times between now and when we're done with Hebrews. Melchizedek. Say it with me. Melchizedek. This is one of the most important figures in all the Bible, one of the most helpful figures in helping you understand who Jesus is. And most of us, even for my part, until... A few years ago, I didn't fully appreciate who this person is and how he works as a shadow of the one to come. Melchizedek. We'll figure it out later. The, the author comes back to this idea. 
But for now, just know that he's bringing in this text from Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is a priest forever. He's not just developing this idea out of thin air that Jesus is a high priest. This is something David prophesied in Psalm 110 that the Lord God would appoint the one who is to come to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you want to know Christ? This is who he is. What does it even mean for Jesus to serve as a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek forever? Do you even understand half of the words I just said? But this is who he is for you. This is your Christ. This is your Messiah. This is your King. This is your Lord. And this is how he wants you to know him. Is knowing Christ that valuable to you? Go home and study this. Read all of Hebrews and then read it again and then go read Psalm 110 and then read Genesis where Melchizedek enters and interacts with Abraham and maybe we can begin to understand what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But now, like I said, let it stand as sufficient that the author is just saying he is in fact our great high priest forever. When did this happen? We've talked about how it is that Jesus became high priest and that his humility and not taking on this office for himself, but waiting to be appointed, humbling himself even to the point of death so that he could serve as your great high priest should enable us to realize that he in fact is the perfect one to serve as our high priest and can relate to us in our weakness and in our infirmities and in our waywardness and our ignorance. But how else can we know that Jesus is the perfect one to serve as our great high priest? These two ideas here. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We could spend a lot of time relating how all these work together with the Davidic covenant and how the prophecies function in both Psalm 2 and 110. But a verse that I think brings this all together is Romans chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And this answers the question, when is this day that God appoints him as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever? When is this day, he says, today I have begotten you. Jesus is always the Son of God. He was forever with the Father but when is it that he is declared to be the son of God? When is it that he attains to the office of high priest? Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The day on which this prophecy in Psalm 2 and the prophecy in Psalm 110 is taking effect in human history is the day of Jesus' resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So on that day when Jesus exits the tomb in victory over Satan's sin and death, he is declared, this is in fact my son. This is in fact the one who will serve forever after the order of Melchizedek as the great high priest for you and for me. And this should, and I will leave you with this before we get to a few points of application. This is the second way the author gives us, at least in these verses, for us to draw near and have the confidence that Jesus is able to deal with us in our weaknesses and infirmities because he has tasted death. 
He died in the most brutal and unimaginably terrible way so that he could serve in this office as your great high priest forever. He's able to deal with you in gentleness, in our waywardness and ignorance and weakness. Not because he himself is weak, but he took on weakness. He took on pain. He took on suffering and died. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the day that Jesus is declared to be in vindication, the Son of God and the great high priest forever. So just a few points of application here. First, as I've been saying throughout this message, do you want to know Christ? Do you want to attain to the resurrection of the dead? It's not just a mystical thing that super spiritual Christians get to do. This is your life to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Know Christ. And he enables you to draw near. Also, Christ is our example in his humility. This is present in so many passages, so many Christological passages throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament. But this one in particular, he did not take the office that even he alone was worthy to take because he waited and humbled himself for God to appoint him as high priest as he is raised from the dead. So how humble ought we to be towards one another? How much more ought we to be gentle and patient and sympathetic towards those with weakness that God has surrounded us with, understanding that we are beset by weakness? Also, if you don't know Christ in this way, understand that he is the only one qualified to mediate between you and God, to represent you on your behalf to God and to deal with your sins. If you do not know Christ in this way, then it is only you before a holy God with your sin to your account. That's your situation. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you are not under his care as your great high priest, then you are in great trouble of his wrath. Your sins have not been atoned for. They have not been dealt with. It is only in Christ once for all time sacrifice that your sins can be dealt with. You must know him in this way. So let today be the day of salvation for you. Do you know Jesus this way? For the Christian and the non-Christian in this room, hopefully what I've done is clarify who Jesus is and I've exalted his glory and the mystery of his role as our great high priest. And may we all have the grace to pursue, to know him more, that we would be able to echo with the Apostle Paul. I have counted all things lost as rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Let's pray.